But anyway, uh, we're, what I want to share with you is one I shared with the other church uh, a few weeks back, and it's the book of Habakkuk. So uh, if you turn in your Bibles to, to the book of Habakkuk, and I, I want to start off with, with a, a question that I really want, actually want some feedback on. This is not a rhetorical question. I'll ask some of those in a minute. But uh, when you have the opportunity to speak to someone who does not believe in God, what are some of the most common objections that you face when uh, you get to talk to them? Evil and suffering. Why? I mean, that, that is one of the, the most common ones that you face. Why is there evil in the world? If God is God, if he's, if he's good and if he's powerful, why does evil exist? Uh, I was talking to a co-worker. Uh, I work on a masonry crew during the week. I, I just do this on the weekends. Uh, and uh, I was asking one of my co-workers uh, about Christ the other day, and he says that's his sticking point. He says the one thing he cannot get past is why is there evil in the world? Why does God allow evil? And, of course, we have conversation about uh, perhaps why, but, you know, that's one of the, the most common questions that people ask. But there's some others, uh, but Habakkuk directly deals with that question today. Uh, this is a rhetorical question. Uh, how do you handle it, though, when you have questions about God? I think all of us have been there. I, I mean, I, I have. You know, there, I want to know why certain things happen. Uh, I want to know uh, why God allows certain things and doesn't allow certain things. Uh, but when you have questions for God, uh, do you just ignore it? Do you just say, "Oh, I'm not going to even think about it. I'm just, I'm just going to kind of put my blinders on, and I'm not, I'm going to ignore any questions that I have." Uh, do you, for lack of a better way to say it, fake it till you make it? You just fake it. You, you don't, you, you, you pretend that you don't have any questions. And I think that's probably more common among other other Christians, when you're talking to other Christians, you might have a problem, but you don't want to let anybody else know that you have any questions or that you have any issues, so you just kind of fake it like you really don't have any questions about it. Do you let it fester until it becomes a problem? Do you just let it eat at your whole, your heart and just let it eat at it until, until you really, uh, it, then it becomes a problem and then you, you might even get bitter about it. I've been uh, listening to a book, I just finished it recently, by Paul Miller called The Praying Life. And one of the things he stresses over and over and over again is that God wants us to talk to him. When we come to God, he doesn't want us to, to do all those things. He doesn't want to ignore the issues. He doesn't want us to, to fake it till we make it or just let it fester. He wants us to bring our questions. He wants us to bring our issues to him. He can handle it. Now, there are a few things we need to keep in mind is that uh, while God, I believe, wants us to take our questions to him, there are a couple of things we need to understand is that is that he may not give us an answer at all. He may not answer our question. Job is a classic example of that. Basically, Job has all these issues, and basically all God says is, you're God, I'm God and you're not. That's about four, four chapters of all that. Where were you when I prayed the world? Where were you when I did this? Do you understand how this all works? Basically, God said, yes, look, you're going to understand that I'm God and you're not. Uh, it, if he does give us an answer, it may not be the one that we think or want. Not always, God's answer is not always the one that we want to hear. It's also crucial where we get the answer from. Uh, 
and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. It's, it's important that we get the answers to our questions from God, His Word, uh, uh, not not the world, not uh, other other sources. And how do we access that answer? Well, we I believe that Habakkuk's going to tell us really how we access the answer is by faith, and how we respond to that answer is the same place. Habakkuk is kind of a unique book. Most other prophets declared God's message to people. They, he, what the prophet did is they, he got, they got messages from God, and they said, "Look, you guys got to. These mostly, you guys got to straighten out. Bad things are going to happen." Prophet uh, Habakkuk uh, dialogue dialogued with God about people. Uh, most Old Testament prophets proclaimed the divine judgment. Habakkuk pleaded for divine judgment. He actually asks God to judge the nation of Israel, or to judge Judah. Uh, in contrast with the typical indictment, the, this little book records kind of an intriguing interchange between a perplexed prophet and his maker. And it deals with some questions that are common that have been since really creation. Every, every person, every time of this world, these people, these questions have been present. I've entitled this message Real Faith because I think it shows us what real faith shows, how real faith manifests itself in their life. Let's pray and then we'll open up this word. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, Father, that it shows us what uh, real faith ought to be and what it ought to do. And Father, help us to be this kind of people with true faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, I want to set the, the setting for uh, this book. Uh, you know, it, it tells us that, uh, verse 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Now, as with a lot of the minor prophets, uh, nothing is really known about the prophet from other than what's in the book. There's a few things we can infer from the book, but we don't really know. He was probably a temple singer or mus- musician. Uh, we can see that in chapter 3, but really we don't even know that for sure. His Simple introduction probably says that he was well known, that he didn't have to give any credentials. He didn't have to tell who he was. He just says, hey, this is Habakkuk. And so the people would have known exactly who he was talking about. So that's probably why there wasn't a lot of detail. Uh, We do know that he was a contemporary of uh, the prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zephaniah. And uh, just a brief history. Uh, If you remember, you know, after David, we had King Solomon. Uh, Solomon uh, left about nine, uh, he died about 931 BC, and his son Rehoboam, uh, after Solomon, the kingdom split. And we have the northern kingdom, we, uh, the Bible usually refers to them as Ephraim or Israel, uh, or the northern kingdom. Uh, they, uh, every one of their kings from 931 to 722 of that kingdom, every one of them uh, did not do what was right in the sight of God. So in 722, the Assyrian kingdom came down and wiped out the northern kingdom. They're pretty much lost. They became the Samaritans. Uh, the southern kingdom, under Rehoboam, uh, were all David's descendants. Every one of the kings in the, the southern kingdom, uh, Judah and Benjamin, were David's descendants. They lasted until about 606 B.C., and that's when the Babylonian kings came and took their, took their southern kingdom. Okay. Uh, Habakkuk was just before that Babylonian captivity. Uh, it's just before that. It's kind of a final warning. Hey, uh, we got some problems. And so uh, that's where we're at in the timeline of the Old Testament. Okay? 
So that's the setting. Now that we continue, what, what we have in, in uh, Habakkuk really is Habakkuk has two questions. God gives two answers, and then uh, Habakkuk kind of gives a, it's really a psalm of praise in chapter 3. And that's what we see in the book of Habakkuk. But the first question we find in, uh, starting in verse 2 of chapter 1, and it says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and thou wilt not hear? I cry out to thee violence, yet thou dost not say, Why dost thou make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Uh, so when it says the law is ignored, it's kind of an interesting term there. It really, literally means the law is chilled. Or numb. You ever had your hands so cold that you can't feel what you're touching, and it just you, you can't do what you're supposed to. And really, the word there it basically means that it had no respect. It was given no authority. Uh, just as hands are useless when they're too cold, the impact and effectiveness of the law was paralyzed. Why? Because of the corruption of Judah's leaders. It says they they were surrounded. Uh, the the righteous were surrounded by the wicked, so they they really couldn't do anything. What is Habakkuk asking? He says, he, he saw the wickedness and the injustice around him, and basically he's asking God, why haven't you judged us? Are you indifferent to sin and uh, justice? Are you unconcerned, or, or worse, are you perhaps even impotent? Today, we would ask the question, why do you allow evil? Why does evil continue to go on? Why do you let that happen? As people see the evil in the world, it's a little wonder that uh, thinking people begin to ask questions. Why is there so much oppression? Why all the injustice? Why do evil men prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God clean up the mess? Why, why, why? To me, what's unusual about this source is, unusual, unusual about this, though, is the source, okay? This is like an American prophet coming to God and saying, why haven't you judged America? Now, I don't know about you, but I believe that America is ripe for judgment. We deserve it. We really do. But I'm not praying for God to wipe America out. I'm praying for revival. I'm praying that God would come and straighten us out, that we would that the, the leadership would lead us back towards God rather than away from God, and that we would uh, that He would heal this land. That's what I'm praying for. But but basically, Habakkuk is saying, God, straighten this mess out. Please judge the, na the nation of Judah. God's answer is found starting in verse 5, where he says, Look among the nations, observe. Be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your day that you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. And it goes on uh, even further into what uh, what's going to happen. Basically, what he's telling them, he's talking about the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians. And uh, basically, God here breaks his silence, informing Habakkuk that he was not indifferent to Judah's sin but rather than revival, 
he was going to send a terrible and dreadful judgment. Now Habakkuk probably had something in mind, like maybe during the judge's occupation, or maybe a, a famine or a plague, something that would catch the attention of the of Judah and kind of would straighten them up, and they would, like so many times in the past, they they would straighten up for a while. Maybe they'd get a good king and they would start worshiping him. And I'm sure that's more or less what Habakkuk had in mind. But God says, hey, guess what? Uh, I'm going to do something that you wouldn't believe even if you were told. He said, I, I'm going to do something that's going to be a whole lot more significant than what you're thinking about, Habakkuk. But then that caused another question in Habakkuk's mind. And we find that starting in verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. And it's, that's easy to overlook. But over throughout all this, he understands that God's not going to completely destroy the nation of Israel. He understands that. The nation is not going to die. But he says, Thou, O Lord, hast appointed them to judge. And thou, O Rock, hast established them to correct. Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. Why dost thou look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why art thou silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why hast thou made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a rule over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. They offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large and their food is Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. I want to notice a couple of things here. Okay? The prophet could not fully comprehend the sovereign workings of God, the righteous God, and he, he expressed complete faith and trust that that God, he knew God wasn't going to wipe out the nation of Israel. Uh, why? Because of God's covenants. God had promised certain things. So he knew that, that God wasn't going to break his promises. So it wasn't about annihilation of the nation of Israel, okay? but it was about what was going to happen. And humanly speaking, the Babylonians could very easily have extinguished the people of Judah, but just uh, Habakkuk refused to believe that that was going to happen. But in spite of his, his trust or expressions of faith, he found himself in further questions. Okay? The es- essence of uh, Habakkuk's question is expressed in verse 13. If God is too pure to behold evil, then how can he use the wicked to devour a person more righteous than he? Would not God's use of the Chaldeans result in greater damage to his righteous uh, character? I mean, it's bad enough, Habakkuk is saying, that him as a weak sinner would have to hold, behold wickedness, but to have a righteous God see the evil and do nothing about it seemed beyond comprehension and even worse as a way to bless it because that's how uh, kingdoms became rich. They, they conquered other kingdoms, they plundered them, and then they made them tax, you know, they taxed them and made them keep paying tribute. And so the, the, the ones who were uh, militarily uh, over everything became richer and richer. And so so Habakkuk is saying, wait a second. Why are you using a, a nation that's more wicked than Judah to judge Judah? Well, aren't you blessing? In fact, aren't you blessing the, their wickedness? Okay. 
wickedness and violence seemed to go unchecked. Would there be no end to that? And then Habakkuk took his complaint to God. Why don't you do something? And God answered, I'm going to be doing something. Judah will be punished for Babylon. And the prophet was more perplexed. And so he had this profound profound dilemma. Here's a question. How can you use evil to accomplish your purposes? It's bad enough that evil exists, but worse is why do the wicked prosper? Okay, it's bad enough, isn't it, that, that you let evil exist, but it seems as though uh, you're saying that, uh, or you let the wicked prosper. And God's answer is as follows. And in verses, in chapter 2, verses 2 to 20, we see two things. One, we see the main point of this whole book, and we also see five woes. And we're starting in verse 2. It says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. And what that means is that they may run to tell others. Okay, Not get out of here, run away, but run to tell others. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail, though it tarries. Wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that uh, he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like shul, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all people. And the main verse and the whole point, you might say, of Habakkuk is that little phrase in verse 4 where it says, the just man shall live by his faith. That's the whole point of this book. That's the key clause In contrast with the self-reliant, boastful ways of the unrighteous, the righteous are supposed to be found to be reliant on God and faithful to Him. And that phrase is quoted three times in the New Testament. I want to just look at those very briefly today. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, what exactly does it mean to us today that the righteous man shall live by his faith? Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. How do we live eternally? How do we come to know Christ as Savior? It's by faith. The righteous man will live by his faith, not by his works, Not by doing all the right things, the righteous man will come to Christ, will know him as Savior by his faith. The next place that Paul uh, quotes this verse is in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 10, Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, where it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So both of those places tell us very clearly that how do we come to know Christ? How are we redeemed? How are we justified before God? It's by faith. 
But it doesn't stop there because the writer of Hebrews tells us, uh, it goes beyond that. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 32. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 32, says this. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Now, I, I just want to back up real quick. The book of Hebrews, uh, you need to understand what it is, is it was written to, to Jewish people who had, uh, they were of the dispersion and they were in the church, but because of persecution, many of them were thinking about leaving Christianity and go, going back into Judaism because it was just easier. Uh, and really, the, the book of Hebrews is two things. One, it main, mainly it tells us about the superiority of Christ and Christianity to the Old Testament system. But also there are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews basically saying, don't go back. Uh, there, do not go back into Judaism because it's, it's, and then it gives us those reasons for that. And this is one of those warning passages, okay? But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but, by, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So he's telling us, you know what? Not only is it faith that, that saves us, it's also faith that helps us to continue to walk in the way of Christ. Now, it doesn't, that doesn't mean that if we don't you know, hang in there that we're going to lose our salvation. That's not what it's saying. What it's telling us is these people who, many of them, may not have even been Christians. They had just been part of the church, and they were going to fall away because they gave up. Then the rest of chapter 2, we won't go into the in-depth of, of back now in Habakkuk. Uh, the rest of chapter 2, there's five woes called upon the Babylonians. Uh, and we won't go into them because it's not relevant to really what we're talking about. But there are five things that they did. Verses uh, 6 through 8, it was extortion. Uh, 9 through 11 was exploitation. 12 through 14 was ruthlessness. Uh, uh, 15 through 17 was debauchery. Uh, I do want to read 18 through 20 because it is relevant. And he says, What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a dumb stone, Arise. And that is your teacher. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside of it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So they, uh, I couldn't help but uh, think of uh, uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel uh, when, when they're talking about this. You know, hey, uh, you, you say to some dumb, dumb piece of stone, awake, arise, do something. He's just like Elijah when he's making fun of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel saying, hey, you know, cut yourself, yell louder. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's busy doing something. Uh, of course, he never answers. Uh, 
God's answer here is, based, is yes, I may use them for my purposes, and they may prosper for a while, but they will get what they deserve. Yes, the wicked sometimes do prosper, let's be honest, uh, but they will be judged. There will be justice in the end. It will be justice, not mercy, unless they come to Christ. Okay? I want to look, chapter 3, at the conclusion of real faith. This is where, where, where faith ends up. Okay? After all of this, basically Habakkuk breaks out and prays for his God. And this, this chapter is really a psalm. And, and I mentioned before, it's, uh, Habakkuk was possibly a temple singer or a musician uh, because it says in the very first verse of prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigayanoff, I don't, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but that oftentimes the Psalms say according to this, and it's probably some kind of musical ar- arrangement. Okay? And then over in chapter 19, notice the very last word. Some of your versions might have have it as a kind of a footnote. For the choir director on my stringed instruments. Notice it doesn't say on the stringed instruments. It says on my stringed instruments. So he was probably a temple musician of some kind. Okay, Verses uh, starting in verse 3. Uh, well, let's just go back to verse 2. Lord, I have heard thy report about thee, and I fear O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God, so he's saying, God, I know you're going to judge Judah, but please remember mercy in that. Uh, and revive your work of mercy. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. We see God's arrival. We see God's appearance. Uh, we see... Uh, Verse 4, his radiance is like the sunlight. His, he has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan under distress. The tents of the land of Midian were trembling. So he understands God's uh, uh, judgment. We see in verses 8, through 15 God's actions first in nature and then again in, in uh, among the nations but I want to jump ahead to his conclusion in the last three verses okay. though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit in the vines though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food though the flocks the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls yet I will exalt in the Lord I will rejoice in the God of my salvation the Lord God is my strength he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places so Habakkuk outlined the worst possible consequences complete failure of crops uh, uh, total loss of sheep and cattle but even in the midst of absolute ruin and abject famine, by, by which, by the way, they all had when Jerusalem was captured by uh, the Babylonians, the prophet was prepared to trust God because the unfailing source of strength and confidence necessary for satisfaction and contentment is the sovereign Lord God himself. It's not in the circumstances. It's not in how good things are out there now. Or how bad the ultimate source of con- of satisfaction and contentment. You know the difference between uh, happiness and con- 
had this recently in my life, uh, and there's a difference. Uh, my wife and I like to ride bikes. We really, uh, my wife had cancer, but when she got uh, better, we decided to start getting healthy and uh, riding bikes. And uh, one of the bikes I had uh, had a defective uh, shifter on it, and uh, it broke. And it was during COVID, and so they could not get the part. And my bike isn't a high-end bike. It's you know anything about bikes there's uh, with the shifters there's the regular end and then there's the upper end that's called the Ultegra and then there's the up the really professional model stuff called the Dura Ace and uh, they uh, couldn't find my shifters a matching set of my lower end shifters the only ones they could find were the professional models of shifters so they put two professional model shifters on my bike for free but I wasn't content. I was happy, but I wasn't content. I wonder how I wasn't content. Because I was hoping the shifters are okay, but the derail is going on. I would really like the professional model. To, I was hoping that they wouldn't quite sync together so they would have to replace the whole system with the really good models. Well, I was happy, right? But I wasn't really content because I was hoping, you know, I. If only it could be a little better. If only they would have done the whole thing rather than just a little bit. But he was content. He was satisfied because he knew who God was. No matter how, his, his expression was, no matter how bad it gets, I will praise God. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Wow, what a lesson for us. I just want to close with a few, uh, first a review and then a, a, some quick application. So the opening verses of Habakkuk reveal a historical situation in which justice had essentially disappeared from the land. Violence and wickedness were pervasive. They existed unchecked. In the midst of these dark days, the prophet cried out for divine intervention. God's response that he was sending the Chaldeans to judge Judah. That created an even greater theological dilemma for Habakkuk. Why didn't God purge his people and restore their righteousness? How could God use the Chaldeans to judge a people more righteous than they were? God's answer was that he would judge the Chaldeans also. Uh, but that didn't fully satisfy the prophet's theological quandary. In fact, it only intensified it. In Habakkuk's mind, the issue crying for resolution was no longer uh, uh, God's, or God's righteous response toward evil or lack thereof, but uh, the vindication of God's character and covenant with his people. Like Job, prophet argued with God and through that experience he achieved a deeper understanding of God's sovereign character and a firmer faith in him. Ultimately Habakkuk realized that God was not to be worshipped merely because of the temporal blessings he bestowed but for his own sake. So what can we learn? Again the whole point of this is just to live by faith and the first thing we can learn is faith saves us. If you're here and you're trusting in your works to get you to heaven, please stop. You'll never get there. The passage in Galatians says if you have to keep the whole law. If you offend in one point, you're condemned. And I'm sure all of us, I that one gentleman at work that I was talking to, uh, uh, how can evil exist? Uh, he's probably broke nine of the commandments. Uh, you know, I don't think he's murdered anybody, but I think he's broke the rest of it. So let's be honest, most of us. If we take it literally, we probably we're probably up to seven or eight, right? And if we take Jesus's 
description of, you know, if you call someone a fool, you've committed murder, and you thought some bad thoughts about a woman or a man, you've committed adultery. So we're probably all up to nine or ten, all of us, right? So if you've ever done any of that, you're trying to get your works by heaven. Uh, the prophet says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So don't trust in your works. You need to trust by, accept it by faith. Another thing I, I, I learned is that faith brings its questions to God. God doesn't mind you bringing your questions. If you have an issue, if you have a question, if you don't understand something, take it to God. He doesn't mind. And then this seems redundant, but it's really not. But the next one, I, the thing I learned is that faith goes to God for the answers. And what I mean by that is so often what happens, we might ask God, why is this happening? And then where do we go for the answers? We go to other people. We go to the world. We go to a book. And there's nothing wrong with other people. If you have a godly counselor or a good book, that's fine. But we don't really go to God and his word for the answers. We just ask him the question. Then we go to everywhere else for the answer. Well, we need to go to God for the answer. We might not get the answer we want. Or in the way that we want, even when we want. But think of Habakkuk. One of the things... It's not what he wanted. He wanted revival. He didn't want deportation. But you know one interesting thing about uh, the the captivity was it pretty much cured Israel of overt idolatry. They had a lot of problems after the captivity when they got back. But you know what? They didn't have shrines. They didn't have bales and asherahs. They had problems, but it pretty much cured them of the issue of overt idolatry. Another thing is that faith comes to the right conclusions. Habakkuk got the right conclusions. He realized, you know what, it's not all about the things, it's not about everything you do. Although we certainly, there's nothing wrong with praising God for all of his blessings. There's nothing wrong with praising God for for, uh, all the good things he's given us and will give us. But you know, ultimately, we just need to praise God for his because, you know, sometimes it's tough. Sometimes things don't go right. Uh, when my wife was going through cancer, uh, we asked the questions, why? But it's funny, we never asked why her. And we just accepted the fact that that is what God chose us to be. One of the things we said, it is what it is. Now, well, how do we deal with that? How God help us to get through this? Uh, and that was a tremendous help for us. Another thing is, is faith perseveres. Real faith doesn't quit when things get hard. It perseveres. That's what Hebrews is really talking about. Faith perseveres. And then faith believes God and acts like it. Just really briefly, I want to look at a few verses in Hebrews 11. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11. We have the the great hall of fame of faith, so-called. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of not seeing things not seen. Jumping over to verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, 
obeyed by going out of a place which he was to receive for inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse uh, 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his own and God's son. See, faith believes God, then acts like it. It doesn't, it just doesn't say, yeah, I believe God, and then goes its own way and doesn't actually change the way it changed the way we live or change the way we think. Ultimately, I think faith changes the what we, way we think and it changes the way we act. Faith changes us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this picture from the prophet Habakkuk who, who tells us, Father, who you really are. Father, help us to have that kind of faith that no matter our, our misunderstanding, no matter our, our dilemmas, no matter the difficulties we face, that we can come to you and we recognize that you are the sovereign God and that you love us and that you're in control and help us to have the faith to believe that. And